Welcome to Gawk Talk Pod. This is our 2021 Bloomsday special. We are honoring James Joyce's epic Ulysses by recognizing and delving into its influence on another great epic that is George Martin's Song of Ice and Fire. Now, I have promised a full episode on Joyce and his influence on the series, and I will do that. But I mean, I just didn't see how I could let Bloomsday, June 16th, pass without issuing some Joyce material and some Joyce commentary. So this is a brief snippet, just one portion of the Joyce material as it relates to A Song of Ice and Fire. And we'll look at just one dimension of the text, one storyline where we can see George following Joyce's lead. First, we should say a word for the non-Joyce initiates. Bloomsday is June 16th. That is the day, the single day depicted in James Joyce's Ulysses. And it is called Bloomsday because the central character of the book is Leopold Bloom. He is the character that we follow around Dublin. He is the compassionate actor at the center of the story. He is the father in search of a son, the husband of a beloved wife, though admittedly part of a difficult marriage. And he's the father of a daughter who is geographically distant, but nevertheless is present in his thoughts. So again, I will do a much, much deeper dive into Joyce and his life and his work in a complete Joyce episode. But here, just suffice it to summarize the book or frame the book this way. Joyce's book, was controversial for its frank depictions of male and female sexuality, and it was initially censored and even banned outright in much of the English-speaking world. And in light of that controversy, one commentator said that the book was not fit to read, to which Joyce responded. This is like one of the greatest or most famous quotes of all time. Someone says the book isn't fit to read. Joyce says, then life is not fit to live. So it's impossible to summarize the book here and, and you know, briefly, but, but it does intentionally address like essentially every aspect of human life and human nature. Okay, so that was a bit for the Joyce uh, or the non- the non-Joyce people. Here's a bit for the non-George Martin people. A Song of Ice and Fire I am calling a great epic. It is a great epic in the tradition of all the great epics. It follows in the footsteps of Joyce and Homer and Dante and Milton. It's not just a great fantasy epic either. I'm not going beyond even those boundaries to say that A Song of Ice and Fire qualifies as great literature, full stop. And really like all great literature, there are many and profound lessons to be learned from the text. And what's more, George borrowed freely from those other great epics. He referenced them, he included signs and pointers and signifiers at every step of the way, just all throughout the text, providing links and context for his writing by tying directly to those earlier great works. So like, for example, in a, a separate episode, we show that George appears to have built the entire Stark family storyline around Dante and Dante's conception of hell 
and purgatory and how man can lose the path and he needs to find his way back to the path. And you do that by accepting personal responsibility and uh, improving the intellect and improving the will so that you can make better choices. Well, I think in the same way, George has built Danny's storyline around James Joyce and around Ulysses in particular. Having said that, though, I don't want to limit Joyce's influence to say, oh, it's only about Danny. The reality is that the influence on George's series is much, much deeper than that. The entire point of view structure of the series, right? That derives from James's, or sorry, yeah, Joyce's work. I mean, or it was popularized by Joyce. So that, that is arguably, Ulysses is arguably the most famous expression of point of view and stream of consciousness writing. So so one, like that's the key issue. And many of the themes and issues in Ulysses, fathers and sons maturing or blooming, right? The guy's name is Leopold Bloom. That's not an accident. Blooming into adulthood. There's the famous quote about the boy in Act 1 is the man in Act 5. Tell me that doesn't sound similar to kill the child and let the man be born that George uses, right? So so blooming or maturing into adulthood, meeting all the challenges of life with grace and humility and soldiering on in the face of some real difficulty. All of those famous, famous lines around perception and reality, which again, for Joyce, you know, the ineluctable modality of the visible, the, the concept of the parallax or that famous line, shut your eyes and see well, all of those things are on display in George's work, right? We already talked about the epilogue, or the prologue to book one, where we encounter the problem of the eyes full force. What else is Joyce talking about? Female. So here's a great one, right? Female sexuality, female agency. One of the greatest chapters or greatest characters in literature is Molly Bloom, Bloom's wife. She's only in, well... I shouldn't say she's only in. She only gets one point of view chapter, but that chapter is one of the most famous chapters in all of English, English literature. Well, certainly George, too, has a lot of issues with female sexuality, with female agency, right? There's entire discussions, arguably Cersei's entire storyline, right, is consumed with this issue of what can women do, Asha's story, Arya's story. So there's just so many similarities. And of course, Danny. Right, Danny's story is also about this this story of female empowerment, a woman, a girl growing into a woman, a girl suffering horribly and yet, you know, emerging, blooming into her fully realized adult self. Or or look at this storyline, which also consists or is consistent with Danny's experience, and that is usurpation. The theory of usurpation or the subject of usurpation is very powerful in Ulysses. It's one of the central stories. And of course, it's also central to Danny's story. Or another one is just there are so many examples. Metempsychosis. What does metempsychosis mean? It's comparable to reincarnation. Maybe that's a shorthand we can use. Metempsychosis arguably is a direct lift from Ulysses that appears in Danny's story, right? All those discussions about toss a coin and see what you get. Which which Targaryen are you going to get? The crazy one or the 
competent ruler. Well, those are all examples of metempsychosis at work. So many of the scenes from Joyce's work, the initial chapters, are mimicked or repeated very closely in the Danny chapter. So just in this brief episode, this Bloomsday episode, we're going to focus on just the Danny scenes and links to Danny's story or George's story to Ulysses as expressed in the Danny chapters. And, and as I say, we will visit those and look at those other issues because I, I i know i've said this before but i i really profoundly believe it's hard to understand what george is doing and what we as readers can take from the song of ice and fire if we don't have some at least some knowledge of joyce's ulysses and some understanding of what joyce is trying to do there oh and one one last thing i should say or maybe just to clear up any confusion or make sure there's no confusion if you're if you're new to the material <laughs> i mean this is a you know, why is Joyce's book called Ulysses if it's based on Homer's Odyssey? Well, Ulysses is the Latinized version of the name. Okay, so that's one. Next issue, even though the story is about its eponymous hero, right? The story is about Ulysses. It's about Odysseus. Both of Homer's work and Joyce's book actually begin with kids, so in Homer's work, Ulysses' son is named Telemachus. And in Joyce's work, it begins with Stephen Daedalus. And for lack of a better term, I call these people lost boys, right? Lost boys. These are guys whose fathers have been literally or figuratively absent from their lives. So Telemachus is the prince of Ithaca. And if Odysseus is dead, right? then Telemachus should be the king. But instead, he's young, he's immature, he has no support, he has no way to take the throne, he has no way to hold the throne. So his story is about issues of succession and growing up and gaining skill and experience and wisdom and taking responsibility for your situation and trying to learn how to live and lead. Now, Stephen is in search of fathers of a sort. I mean, he needs some either a mentor or a father or a father figure. But more broadly, you could say that he's in search of his role, his place in the world. He is a kid that is totally filled up with ideas and poetry and philosophy, but he has no, I mean, less than zero, no real world experience. And so he too has to go out into the world and grow and mature and gain insight that way. As we are going along, we should consider, keep that in mind, because we need to consider that in the context of Danny and Viserys. And just tell me Viserys doesn't qualify as one of these lost boys. He has no parents to speak of. He has nobody to look out for him. Nobody to look out for his development or his interests or give him good counsel. And of course, Obviously, it's the exact same for Danny. As we get going, right, as we get underway here and think about how George has adapted Joyce's material to fit his own great epic, we do need to think about how their journeys are similar to and different from Telemachus and Stephen, right? So let's keep these kind of issues in mind as we get going. And again, we'll talk about this in more depth in a, in a complete Joyce episode where we map, you know, you can map Homer's Odyssey to to Joyce's Ulysses, and as I'm arguing, you can map Homer's Odyssey to George's Song of Ice and Fire. So we'll get into that in more depth later, but we're going to hit on some of these things here, so I wanted to at least mention that. Okay, let's start with 
usurpation, the theme of usurpation. And Joyce, he is writing about Ireland being usurped by England, but he doesn't just mean politically or economically, but we're talking right across the board, culturally, linguistically. I mean, there is an Englishman in the story, like, in fact, the very first chapter, there's an Englishman, he is writing about Irish culture and history and language. He speaks Gaelic to a poor Irish woman who doesn't even recognize the language he is using. So Joyce is railing against, I mean, what is essentially total cultural and historical annihilation. And it's, it, I mean, it gets worse, right? Religiously, they have been usurped by the Catholic Church. So there's their spiritual life is, is usurped by Rome. I mean, the, there's a classic joke that Ireland, Ireland was a country with two capitals and neither one is actually in the country, meaning, meaning Rome and London. But in Ulysses, this concept of usurpation is expressed in other ways. It's a, a, a ton of ways. Bloom is being replaced by his wife's lover. Bloom's daughter is living with another family, so he's being usurped as a father. Stephen is constantly usurped in the novel. Buck Mulligan is his supposed friend, but really a guy just uses him and climbs over him. And, and yes, I am one of those people who believes that Buck Mulligan does usurp Stephen's role, Stephen's place in the novel. Now, okay, let's turn to Danny and Viserys. Okay, so yes, Robert Baratheon has usurped the rightful role as ruler of Westeros, he usurped the throne. That's not in question. But just as in Joyce, the theme plays out much more deeply, much more broadly throughout the story. For example, why are there the constant references? I mean, I see this all the time if you look at forums, internet boards or whatever. Why is it constantly mentioning that Viserys has a borrowed sword? Why does he have a borrowed sword? Who cares, right? Because his role, his wealth, the symbols of power, the instruments of power, all of them have been taken away from him. His childhood, everything, literally, has been utterly and completely erased. When he talks, he spouts nonsense, right? And Illyrio mocks him. He gives him the sly smile. He doesn't even know he's being mocked. I mean, the poor guy is, he's been usurped from his rightful place, but also in his life and his role, he is utterly and completely, you know, humiliated. And all we have to do is look at his ultimate fate in the novel. He is usurped by his own sister. His position in the novel is usurped by his own sister, just as Buck Mulligan replaces, in some sense, Stephen in the story. Danny replaces Viserys in the story. She becomes the the next ruler of, of Westeros, right? The presumptive ruler, right? So, so, and poor Viserys is kicked aside and nobody, I mean, nobody sheds a tear for him. I mean, this poor fellow has lost his family. He lost his inheritance. He lost his sister. He lost his dreams, his hope. And he even lost his place in the novel. I mean, that is a, a, just a horrible, just a tragedy of all proportions. But now look at it from Danny's point of view, right? What is a usurper? Someone who takes power and wealth and authority without your permission. Look at Danny. She has no agency. Initially, Danny has no agency in the story. She has no control over her choices. She has no control over her body. I mean, that is about, again, by our sort of Western standards where personal freedom is the highest virtue or the highest value. 
to have no control over your body, to have no control over your womb, to have these things just taken from her or dispensed and used without any input from her. That is truly horrific. And that is also a total annihilation of the person and their of their agency, uh, of their... I mean, it's just, it's horrific, right? But in contrast to Viserys, she spends every book, every chapter, essentially every moment from Danny 2 on trying to get back what she has lost, to retake control, to make choices, even though she does not control her external conditions, she does control the choices that she makes and how she responds to those conditions. So she begins to re- claim some power, some authority, some control over her environment by reclaiming her ability to make and control what decisions are in front of her. So her body, her sexuality, and ultimately her destiny. She does take that back. And ultimately, <laughs> maybe depending on how many books we get, maybe she reclaims her empire and her throne. Or, or look at it this way. One of the most famous the absolutely most famous lines from Ulysses is, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to wake. That is Stephen essentially summing up Ireland's situation in a single sentence. I think you could make that exact same statement. History is a nightmare from which Danny is trying to wake. Her childhood as an orphan, fleeing from the usurper, never feeling safe, never being stable, constantly having her brother, I mean, essentially manipulate her, torture her, be cruel to her. He uses her as a vehicle for his own dreams and his own ends by marrying her to Khal Drogo. Drogo is using her as a means to his own ends, to fulfill his dreams, to produce the great heir, the prophesied warrior, the stallion who mounts the world. But has she consented to any of those things? Was she consulted in any of those decisions? No, she is living a nightmare. History is the nightmare from which she is trying to awake. She's been used by everybody. She's used by Drogo. She's used by her own brother. She's used by Illyrio. So I, I think it's really legitimate if you can say, yes, Ireland has been plundered by outside forces against her will. I think it is not at all a stretch to say that the exact same thing has happened to Danny. She is a victim of history. She's a victim of her family's history. And it is the nightmare from which she is trying to wait. Okay, now let's look at another key theme from the books, which we can also see very clearly in Danny's storyline. And this is back to that phrase, metempsychosis. Metempsychosis refers to or means the transmigration of souls. Earlier I said, just think of it as reincarnation, so maybe we should just do that. But, but this doesn't necessarily mean people to people, but, but I mean, it could encompass people to animals, animals to people, right? So, you know, there's a famous story. Plato's idea is that the soul is immortal, that the soul contains and gains knowledge from past lives. And so that when we learn things now, today, what we're really doing is just recalling prior knowledge, prior knowledge from a prior life that our soul holds that we haven't yet figured out how to tap into or access. So maybe think of it like this. There's a, there's a very famous line from Moby Dick that <laughs> appears to make no sense. It's an odd line in the story. And the sentence is, 
He says, O Pythagoras, O Pythagoras, I sailed with you on the Venezuelan coast and I taught you to splice a rope. Well, that, it turns out, is a perfect example of metempsychosis. The soul, the very soul that animated Pythagoras, that soul is back it is in the world and it is in new, a new body and it is a sailor and it is learning how to splice rope or recalling in platonic terms in plato's terms it's remembering right knowledge is recalling information you already have but another key realization or point to just underscore is that souls are immortal but bodies are not. That's in Plato, that's in Dante, that's in James Joyce, and that is in A Song of Ice and Fire. In Ulysses, part of the story is them going to a funeral. One of the characters dies, and so they go to the funeral at the beginning of the book. Later on, it's or Patty Dignam, so later on they debate, is Patty really dead? And later on, or still later in the book, there are these goofs about, they, they see a dog, and they think about, well, what if Dignam comes back as the dog? I mean, that is is pure metempsychosis. But really the brilliant, brilliant thing is that Joyce asks, what if we were all suddenly transformed into somebody else? And I really think that's the ultimate thing in Joyce. The, the central, arguably the central notion of Ulysses is this idea about compassion for other people and even creatures. Again, throughout, there's a discussion about how or, or just how Bloom behaves towards animals. Sorry, the implication though is that if you can come back, so if metempsychosis were real, if you could come back as somebody else, then you really might want to stop and think about the views and the feelings and the experience of people all around you. So he has taken this metempsychosis and kind of turned it around. So he forces us to confront the implications of it. So what is really important is not people living in bodies or different bodies in a past life. But the implication, what is important now is to be sensitive to other bodies in this life. That explains the different points of view. Why did he structure the book that way? The differing points of view, the stream of consciousness, all of those things are choices. They're intentional choices or decisions he makes to put you in another person's shoes. To be sensitive to and compassionate toward other people, people all around you. We're forced to ad adopt their point of view in a sense, right? And that is, I think that's what the definition of my operating definition of compassion is, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And guess what? And here we bring it back to a song of ice and fire. Guess what? That is exactly what Danny does. She adapts way better than her brother to living with the Dothraki. She puts herself in the shoes of the victims of the Dothraki. So, so she identifies with both the conqueror and the conquered. So she doesn't distinguish between one or the other, but she identifies and has compassion for all people all around her, right? That is a incredibly, incredibly profound, powerful concept. I mean, we have examples of this everywhere, right? She comes to love Drogo. She really does. But she also can identify with Miri Mazdur and Eroa, the lamb girl. So, or, or even her Kalisar, her so-called, so-called children, the slaves that she frees. 
She identifies with all of them. She feels their suffering. It guides her decision-making at every turn. And, and again, it is made explicit in the text. There is a sentence directly where she says, um, it's a discussion, uh, she's having a discussion about marrying Hisdar, right? And she says, a queen belongs not to herself, but to her people and her people are dying. So she will sacrifice herself, her happiness, her body for the safety and lives of others. That is compassion in action at the highest level. But the metempsychosis angle, right, is even more explicit than that. In A Storm of Swords, Danny Six, we, we hear for the first time, every day, I'm pretty sure it's the first time, Every time a new Targaryen is born, the gods toss a coin in the air and the world holds its breath to see how it will land. What does that mean? It means that when a new Targaryen is born, it is bringing into the world a great ruler or a mad ruler as all Targaryen predecessors have been. The only question is which one do you get? The good soul or the wicked? Danny is the vessel for the soul. But again, we don't know which one, right? The entire novel Indeed, the whole show and the controversy around the show is around which side of the coin do we get. But that should be understood in terms of metempsychosis. So like in A Dance with Dragons, Danny, Danny won A Dance with Dragons. George makes a point of saying that both her father, Aegon, the Mad King, and her brother, Rhaegar, the Good Prince, died before she was born. That is a signal to us. Two souls Two sides of the same coin, two options, two souls vying for one body. Same chapter. She recalls knowledge from the past. Again, we just said Plato says that all knowledge comes from souls stored in the past. All you're doing is recalling knowledge from, from the soul. So in that exact same chapter, she recalls knowledge from the past. She doesn't know from where or from whom, but it's definitely one of her Targaryen ancestors. She says... A crown should not sit easy on the head, one of her forebears had said. But which one? Or what about this part? Earlier, she asks Barristan about her own marriage to Hisdar. He compares it with the weddings of Rhaegar and Elia on the one hand, and Aegon and her own mother on the other hand. So again, one vessel, two souls. Rhaegar. So one option for her marriage is Rhaegar and Elia. Another option is Aegon and her own mother. So that notion that she is going to be the reincarnation of one. She is the, the reinvestiture in, in flesh and blood of one of these souls is predominates just throughout the work. And so George has cast it in terms of uh, blood, blood tells, blood is the determining factor. That's how George has chosen to frame it, but we know that this is another way to talk about metempsychosis without using the word metempsychosis. Or look at one of Quentin's chapters where we get the whole discussion about how they're, they're basically, Quentin and his companions are talking about the Khaleesi and they're they're listening to like basically barroom talk, barroom chatter and we get this whole discussion about how she turns against her own, how she breaks truces, how she killed her call to become Khaleesi and all of that is just like her father. It runs in the blood is the 
is the sentence or is the conclusion to that paragraph. So that is the concept that George is working with. Again, it runs in the blood equals, <laughs> paraphrase or yeah, yeah, equals substitute for metempsychosis. Is she Aegon or is she Rhaegar reborn? That is the question of metempsychosis straight up. Okay, so finally, let us just look at one more thing. Let's look at the mirroring, the markers that tie Danny. Danny won the first chapter. Danny won from A Game of Thrones to the opening of James Joyce's Ulysses. Now, we know from Catelyn won the previous chapter of Game of Thrones, we hear River Run. We hear the discussion of River Run. That, of course, is the signifier, the Joyce marker, right? That's the first word of the first sentence. <laughs> Arguably the only intelligible sentence. That's the first word of the first sentence of Finnegan's Wake. That is not likely to be an accident. That's not likely to be something that we weren't going to catch, right? That That's a clear, like, neon flashing sign that we're in Joyce territory. But then it really comes to life in this chapter where usurper happens to be the final word of the first episode or of episode one of Ulysses. And as we've discussed, it's the central theme or one of the central themes of the work. And and of course, it's also a huge theme in George's work as well. And so we get all of that here on display in Danny 1. Maybe first we should talk about who's being usurped. I mean, maybe let's, yeah, so let's start with Viserys and, and Stephen, Stephen Daedalus. Stephen is just a young, immature dude trying to make his way in the world. He's trying to make sense of it. He's trying to sort out his place in it. He's embittered. Certainly he's embittered. He's a lost boy, as I've said. He has no mother. He has no father. His mother is uh, literally dead, and his father is uh, metaphorically lost to him. His father is an alcoholic. He's not comfortable in his own skin. He's all filled up with ideas but he has no real experiences. He travels to a foreign land for education, for insight, for opportunities, but what does it get him in the end? That all really sounds a lot like Viserys's journey, Viserys's evolution, and indeed his character as we start Danny 1. Uh, with respect to the action, the action that begins uh, Ulysses, we start out with a character named Buck Mulligan. I'm calling Mulligan the usurper of Stephen's role throughout the book. Uh, throughout the book, he so it begins with him making his toilet. That is the long explanation of him washing up. He's shaving. He's getting dressed. He looks in the mirror. He's getting ready to go out. He at one point climbs the parapet. He looks out over the bay. Right. He looks out over Dublin Bay. All of that. That that's all the setup to Chapter One, Episode One of Ulysses, which, as I said, ends with the line or the word usurper. So now let's look at James Joyce, or uh, sorry, let's look at George's, how he begins Danny 1. She also, it, it begins with her getting dressed. It begins with her uh, making her toilet, right? She's bathing. She's being, getting ready to go out, but she's going to go out to meet Drogo. She, she, she looks out over the bay, the exact same thing. She looks in the mirror. Uh, there's a line where it says, Buck Mulligan, he has white teeth of golden points. And then Illyria walks into the room and the first thing it says is that he has yellow teeth and a forked golden beard. So again, I, I think those are those are very similar, very close. I, I just don't believe that's accidental. Not, not when you're using River Run, you're talking about usurpation. You're mirroring these two things so closely. But then we do get a bit of a role reversal because in Ulysses, Buck Mulligan says to Stephen, you killed your mother. 
But of course, in Thrones, it's Viserys, and he and he explicitly says, or Danny thinks, Viserys will never forgive her for their mother's death. And then the mirror scene is a little bit different. In the mirror, Stephen looks into the mirror, and Stephen thinks, is this how people see me? Is this face me? Am I this face looking back and how people perceive me? But we can compare that with Danny looking in the mirror, and they say to her, you look all a princess, but all she can think looking in the mirror is that the collar signifies slavery. What do people see when they see me? What am I, a princess or a slave? She puts on a plum-colored dress. Well, it turns out that there is a famous, or maybe it's better to call it notorious, the parable of the plums in Ulysses. It is an odd little interlude about two old ladies who climb to the top of the Nelson Monument. They eat a bunch of plums and they throw down the seeds. That's it. That's all that happens. Nobody knows. Or maybe I shouldn't. In fact, I, so I scratch that. I don't know. I have no idea what that's about. It's just like a random thing. But but plums do recur at different points throughout the story. And, and guess what? It's kind of interesting because in George's work, it's not plums that recur, but it's a peach. He constantly re- refers back to the to the peach and how vexing the peach is. Well, here we have the plum and how vexing is the plum. Danny dreams in this episode. There's probably like five, I don't know, maybe five mentions of Danny dreaming of the house with the red door. She was happy there. She just wants to go back to the house with a red door. Well, guess what? Bloom in Ulysses longs for the house with the red wallpaper because he was happy there. Okay, but the clincher, as if all, all of that were not enough, there is this famous, famous line from Ulysses in which Stephen, he's arguing with his boss. He's going through this, really suffering through a conversation with his boss when the text says from the, so Stephen's a teacher and the kids are outside playing and his his boss is the principal, so they're in the principal's office and he hears the kids playing outside. From the play field, the boys raised a shout. Stephen says, that is God. A shout in the street. That is a powerful, powerful idea that suggests God is imminent in all things. He is not in some other realm somewhere outside of our lives, or he is accessible in each person right here, right now. Now, go back. Let's go back to the text of Danny 1. It says right there, after she suffers through a conversation with her brother, it says, Danny went to the window and looked out over the waters of the bay. Well, we already mentioned that that is almost verbatim from Ulysses. And then it says, Danny could hear the priests. So we're evoking God, just as in the conversation between Stephen and his boss. Danny could hear the priests and the shouts of the children playing games. She wished she could be out there with them with no past and no future. (laughs) Come on, man. Tell me that's not a reference. That's not a direct reference to Joyce and that we are not supposed to interpret that. We're not supposed to think about the imminence of God and Danny and how she's going to incorporate that into her actions. And indeed, she, she does. I mean, so let's just stop for a second. Who has no past and no future and is eternally imminent in this moment, always and forever? <laughs> only 
<laughs> oh my god. So now go back and consider our discussion about Danny's compassion for others. It is all consistent with this idea, with the idea that is in Ulysses, this famous line from Ulysses, the shout in the street, that is God. God is in every body. Once again, two words. I've used this line before. Every body. God is imminent in every body. Danny's compassion and willingness to sacrifice for others is totally consistent with that idea. She is recognizing and honoring the God in every body. <laughs> okay, I gotta, I gotta check out. On that note, I'm gonna, uh, uh, I'm going to end this, end this now. We'll talk more about Joyce in future episodes. And indeed, we'll cover Danny Wan in a future episode. Okay, guys. Uh, happy Bloomsday, everybody. Bye.